So when was the last time that you walked into a grocery store, (laughs) into the produce section, and you literally just freaked out? Because you should. You should just like freak out. You walk in and you see these giant ears of corn and you'd be like, wow! And you see these long, perfectly straight carrots and you're like, oh my gosh! And you see these apples and they're so red and you're like, dear God, this is amazing. Have you ever done that? Okay. You should. You should freak out when you walk in because it's like, this is some amazing produce. I don't get as excited as I should about produce especially carrots, because now the thing is, like, if you've, the reason that I know we should freak out more is because if you've ever, like, tried to grow your own vegetables, right, in, like, a home garden, say you plant some carrots, and then you go and you dig up the carrots, and you pull out this carrot out of the ground, and you look at it, and you just freak out. You're like, wow, this carrot and then you realize that it looks more like a potato than a carrot. <laughs> you know, you're like, that didn't look like a carrot, but you're so excited, and so you take a selfie with it, and you post it on your Instagram, and you're like, I'm a farmer. <laughs> That's how it works if you have a home garden. You get really excited about your produce, but it's not really that great compared to the produce section at the grocery store. Today I want to figure out why we don't get more excited about the produce aisle at the grocery store. My dad used to work for QFC, and so when we were home, there would always be these annual reports sitting around, you know. It would be a picture of my dad uh, standing next to some produce, you know. (laughs) It was so so weird. I was like, I didn't know you worked in the produce section, Dad, you know. I thought you were an accountant. He couldn't explain it to me. He's just like, yeah. I make really good produce. So why don't we get more excited about really good produce? It's almost like we've become dull to it. Maybe it's because we've never created a carrot on our own. We'll take a look at that today. Now I purposefully picked this parable of the sower which Blaine read for us. You've probably heard it before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe it's brand new to you. But I purposely picked it for Palm Sunday because something happened on Palm Sunday that's only explained by the parable of the sower. You see, as as Jesus came into the city, like I said, people just began to recognize who He was and they had real faith that this was the Messiah and they thought He is going to liberate us from the Romans. He is the one that's going to give us our country back. And it was only five days later that that same group, or at least many of those same people, instead of singing Hosanna, Hosanna, were singing crucify Him. Crucify Him. What happened? Five days. Something happened to their faith. And something was proved about their faith that it had no perseverance, that it did not bear fruit, that there was an immediate joy, but that joy was short-lived. The parable today will show us why that is. So if you haven't turned there already, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. It's also written in your bulletin. You'll see it there. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at the end of your rows. You can pull it up on your phone. Mark is the second of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Basically an account of Jesus' life. 
So as you're turning with, uh, with me, just let me give you some context, right? It's so important to look at the context from which this parable uh, comes forth to us in, in Mark's Gospel. So if you were to read chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Mark's Gospel, what you would see is that there's all these varying levels of response to this person, Jesus. There's skepticism by Jesus' family. There's puzzlement of those who find Jesus' practice with not keeping with the existing religious norms that was infuriating to them. There's superficial enthusiasm by those who crowd around Jesus, and we'll see in this parable even this large crowd hoping that he would heal them, that he would amaze them with his miracles. Uh, Some of them had seen his power already through exorcisms, through healings, And so these large crowds would gather. But what we see in the Gospel of Mark and what surely was happening when Jesus preached this parable was that people were responding to Jesus in all sorts of ways. And so it begs the question, why? And so Jesus tries to answer the question with a parable. Why do people respond so differently to Jesus? People that have seen His power, that know of His miracles, that have heard Him preach with great authority. Why do they respond so differently? How can people respond in such unique ways to the same man who preached the same message? Why is it not universally accepted? What we actually know is that even the demons believe that Jesus was the Son of Man. And if even the, G- uh, the demons believed, then how could those who are in authority, positions of religious and cultural authority, not acknowledge the same thing? In fact, some of them even called Him the devil. What is going on? This parable attempts to answer that question. And I think it's an important question because the same thing happens to us today, doesn't it? (laughs) I have people ask me all the time, if Jesus is really the Son of God, then why hasn't God made it more clear? Why doesn't He now just make it so clear that nobody could deny it? I can't believe it because it's not clear enough to me. Why do so many respond, even today, in such a different way? Let's take a look at what Jesus has to say about that. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat, sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. I mean, picture this scene. People were clearly attracted to them, to him, but but they weren't responding all in the same way. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed some, uh, when he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. 
And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now I'm going to go on now because this is one of the unique parables in which Jesus himself will give some explanation as to what he's saying. So jump with me forward to verse 14. Jesus says this, The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown, uh, sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the one who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the, wor- of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that are sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, one hundredfold. So there's some debate today about whether the focus of this parable is on the seeds or if it's on the soil. And I think this debate sort of misses the point altogether. I think that this parable is all about the seed merging with the soil to produce a crop. That's the main idea. So the focus on one or the other is a little bit unimportant. Both are important. The seed and the soil work together to produce a crop. And so the big uh, question that's addressed is this. We, We said it already. Why is the message of the kingdom of God that Jesus was preaching meeting with such a mixed reception? And the wrong answer is that the sower was doing something right or wrong. That somehow the way the sower sowed was the reason. That's the wrong answer. That's not what's happened here. That's important to remember as we go. The right answer is that the message is being received differently amongst different kinds of people. So a sower, if it's not obvious already, was like a farmer and he'd go out and he'd probably have like a a bag over his shoulder and he'd have seed and he'd cast it, right, like this. He's going through his field. He's casting his seed. And what was common practice in the first century Near East was that um, you'd scatter the seed first and then you'd plow the land, right? So that first group of, uh, uh, of seed that was scattered on the path, there would be sort of a walking path that was through the fields where they did not plow and so some seed would fall on it. And so the idea is that that seed never got inserted into any soil at all. It just sort of bounced off. Never got plowed in, and it remained available for the birds to come and snatch it up. 
So the seed fails to penetrate to the ground, just as the message of Jesus fails to penetrate past the head and into the heart. (laughs) As I was thinking about this parable, I can't for the life of me remember which friend. I texted my buddy Brandon. I thought it was... uh, I thought it was him, <laughs> and he's like, that's not me, dude. And I'm like, oh, sorry about that, because what, what, I have one friend, and I can't remember who it is, that's terrified of birds. I mean, they see a bird land like here, and they just start running, like a serious terror of birds. And I, I thought it was Brandon. Sorry, Brandon, if you're listening to this. It's not Brandon. It's somebody else, and if it's you, text me. Um, terrified of birds, any kind of bird. And I always thought it was such a weird thing until I read this parable. I'm like, we should all be terrified of birds, you know? Birds are creepy, man. They just fly in, steal stuff, fly out. So I'm terrified of birds now. I don't know if you're terrified of birds. You should be. Snatch it up, man. The Word of God. So then we've got these, uh, the soil that's filled with rocks, right? sort of polluted soil, it's got rocks. And the problem here is that the soil's not deep enough so no no roots can dig down deep. And so what I think this is a warning against is this uh, easy believism. You may be a part of churches, this might be you, where all you're taught is to just sort of generally believe and to not really dive any deeper to just kind of stay on the surface. Don't ask too many questions. Don't doubt anything. Just kind of easy believism. So we have these enthusiastic but very unstable converts to Christianity. Now look at verse 17 with me again. It says this, And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises, here's the key phrase, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. These are the folks on Palm Sunday. Initial joy and excitement, but when persecution and tribulation come, when Jesus is arrested, now they're starting to get all this pressure on account of the word. So this is not, this is not like um, any kind of persecution or tribulation. This is particularly related to persecution that comes from the Word of God. So this is religious persecution for being a Christian. So, so this idea of on the account of the Word, it tells us that, uh, that this pressure being exerted on these potential disciples was too much. So, so rather than continuing on in the faith, they would either go back to their old faith, which for the people of Palm Sunday was Judaism, or Judaism as they knew it, to escape, to release the tension, the pressure that was caused. It's hard, right, to be a Christian in Seattle. It's not easy. This is not an easy place to be a Christian. So I feel like this, this, this is rocky soil. It's hard to be a Christian when all the anti-Christian or anti-religious people persecute us. What kind of faith do we have? Is it deep? Is it rooted? Or is it shallow? And at the first sign of pushback, we sort of turn the other way or we laugh it off. 
Oh, yeah, I know, that's kind of weird that we do that. I'm not like one of those kinds of Christians. Then there's the thorns. It's not said here, and this is important to realize, it's not said that the seed dies. It just says what? It says that it bears no fruit. So the seed is choked. And here is the more personal types of temptation that lure us away, that distract us away from the Word of God, that compete that compete for our attention, wealth, entertainment. And because we're so distracted, because there's other things that dominate and, and take our life and our energy, it's not necessarily that we die, it's just that we bear no fruit. We're unfruitful. I think that's important to see here. It's not that we die, it's that there's no progression, there's no growth, there's no maturing I think this is very common. We don't leave the faith completely. We don't die. We don't turn our back. We still would associate as Christians, but we're so distracted that we're unfruitful. And so what I hope you see here, and I think it's intentional, there's this progression that Jesus goes through, this progression of these failed seeds, and it's, and it, and it's very purposeful. The first seed never even gets started. Never even gets started. The second seed starts, but quickly dies. And the third survives, but never produces any grain. In the end, none of these seeds become of any value, value to the farmer. And since he's looking for grain, that's what he cares about. The mere survival of the third seed is unimportant to him. But then we have three examples of good seed, of seed hitting good soil. Verse 20. Read it with me again. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word of God and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. It's very simple. They hear the word, they accept it, and they bear fruit. And there's absolutely no way you could read this and think that number three is unimportant. That it's optional. That there's an option in which you can hear and accept and then stop. It just doesn't leave room for that. So Jesus is challenging this shared mentality that, that, that all the people he spoke to, and I think that, that, that we are amongst, and I am one of them, he's challenging this mentality that we all share and that most of the people thought that, hey, I'm a part of God's people. I'm a, God, I'm a part of God's people. And the way he challenged it by, is by insisting that only those who bear fruit are truly disciples, are truly a part of God's family. And what we see often in Scripture is, it, is those who hear the word, they accept it, and then they move in obedience. They move in obedience to all the things Jesus called his followers to do. So too often, I think, our aim, and, and I have to admit, even my aim as a pastor, 
and my aim as a church planter, I can fall into this mentality where we think, you know, as long as you don't stop coming to church and as long as you don't stop identifying as a Christian, then you're good. And I'm happy because so many people have stopped coming to church and so many people have stopped calling themselves Christians. So as long as you don't do that, just I'm not going to ask very much of you, just don't leave. Jesus would say, that's not the way the kingdom of God works. That is not a valid mark of a true disciple. That's not an option for success. Success can only be marked by fruit, by making new disciples. So there's three big questions that that's kind of, that's kind of, there's like, that. I could stop, and I never do that, but I could stop, and there's a sermon, okay? But I'm going to tell you three questions that I think beg to be answered by this parable that we have to wrestle with, besides sort of the obvious interpretation of this uh, text, okay? So three big questions that I think we need to answer, okay? The first question is this, who sows what? Who sows what? What's the what? The what is the word, we see that in Jesus' explanation, and what kind of word? It's the word of God, and I think it's the words that Jesus himself spoke, and it's the words about Jesus that are encapsulated in the message of God that we call the gospel. That's the word. And it all centers around the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and what that means for the redemption of all who call on his name. That's the word. So like the sower, God spreads his word, and he spreads it widely amongst all people. But how does he do it? This is the who. We've got to answer the who. Um, even, even though uh, the unifying figure, the sower, is not directly explained in this parable, or explained by Jesus' interpretation, I think... Um, we can come to some conclusions about who he's speaking about, okay? And I don't think we have to limit it to the sower is only one type of person, okay? So I think probably what Mark is wanting us to read as we read this is to conclude that the sower is actually three different figures, okay? The sower is God himself. He's ultimately responsible. It's God himself. He sows the word. He sowed Jesus into humanity's history, and he continues to sort of govern the sowing of all things. And then, of course, the sower is Jesus himself, who was going around sowing the message of the kingdom of God, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is here. And he was, of course, speaking of himself as the Son of God, the Messiah. And then I think it's fair to interpret the sower as me and you. Because Jesus told the disciples, when I leave, now you go and spread the gospel. You go make disciples. And then the disciples taught, taught their disciples to go and spread the gospel and make new disciples. And this is the way Christianity grew. And so always it's being passed down the responsibility of sowing. So it's you and it's me. It's anyone who considers themselves a follower of Jesus. Now, 
This is interesting if, if that's true, that it's God and it's Jesus and it's us. It's interesting because I don't know how many of us sow very often. A Lifeway study in 2001 surveyed 3,000 American Protestants who go to church at least one time per month. 80% of them believe that they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. 80% believe they have a personal responsibility to share their faith. But 61% of evangelical Christians, which is even a, a smaller subset, fail to share their faith on a regular basis. And nearly half of those respondents said that they've never invited or they have not invited a non-Christian friend to church in the last six months. And 75%, even though they haven't done it, say they feel comfortable sharing and communicating the gospel. So if you're comfortable, then why aren't you doing it? Here's what the survey found. 12% say they don't feel comfortable, so that's why they're not doing it. And 8% said that they were hesitant to share with others. So that's 20%. So what about the other 80%? They feel comfortable, but they're just not doing it. When asked how many times they've personally invited an unchurched person to attend church or to a church event, 48% said zero times, 33% said one to two times, and 19% said three or plus times in the last six months. Now, statistics are statistics, okay? I'm not sure where you would fall in those statistics. But I think, obviously, we see that the parable is clear. We're to sow the message of God, and yet, most of us don't do it. And what I thought was interesting, even about this study, is that inviting somebody to church is probably the easiest and probably the least effective form of sowing seeds. Don't just invite people to church. Now, you can do that, but you should probably also share with them personally what the gospel is. Why you choose to follow Jesus. Now, some of you are probably deep down, screaming out, Dave, is it all about the words spoken? Some of you might even say, I don't need words to preach the gospel. I'm with St. Francis of Assisi, who uh, I know that he said this, I've heard it. I preach the gospel all the time and use words only if necessary. Have you heard that or said that? I've quoted that before. Here's the problem with that quote. First, scholars agree St. Francis never said that. <laughs> that, some, some, that somehow got put on him. He never said that. The other problem with that mentality is this book right here. The Bible makes it very, very clear. Paul, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 10. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen, right? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Amen. And how are they to believe in Him in whom they have not heard? 
And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The Bible is very clear. We need to use our words. I have a 10-month-old, and it's incredibly frustrating that he can't use words. <laughs> Sometimes you'll find me yelling, use your words! Da! I don't know what that means, but you're probably hungry, so here you go. Now, I have to admit, and I think it's important to say, that it's not only the spoken word. We can fall into that trap, too. It's not only the spoken word, the preached word, the preached message of Jesus, of the kingdom, that's important, but how we do it and how we live our lives and how we love one another. I came across this great summary, and I shared it in a leadership training class that we were doing by John Paul Haidt. He summarizes it well. I'm going to read it to you. The mission of God is, by definition, holistic, and therefore, holistic mission is de facto mission. Proclamation alone, apart from any social concern, may be perceived as a distortion, a truncated version of the true gospel, a parody and travesty of the good news, lacking relevance for the real problems of real people living in the real world. On the other end of the spectrum, exclusive focus on transformation and advocacy may result in social and humanitarian activism void of any spiritual dimension. Both approaches are unbiblical and they deny the whole. And since the fall, humanity falling into sin, affects our total humanity in all its dimensions, then redemption, restoration, and mission can by definition only be holistic in word and deed. It's got to be both. But you can't not preach the gospel. So what is it? The word of God? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who sows the seed? God, through the power of Jesus, through us. The seed is sowed. Now here's important to know. How does it grow? Our job is to sow the word, the truth about Jesus. And our job is to simply invite others to consider that truth proclaimed. Our job is not to make it grow. Our job is not to make it grow. Jump down with me. Jesus tells another parable in verse 26. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Sound familiar? He sleeps and he rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And when the grain is ripe, as once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. I'm really glad that we have this parable so close to the parable of the sower. 
Because if it was our job to make it grow, that would change everything. I hope when you hear, we don't know how it grows. God is the one that makes it grow. That that's freeing to you. That it's not your responsibility. You're not in charge of the timing. God makes it grow. So we have these three kinds of unfruitful soil. We're not responsible if it doesn't grow. God makes it grow. We have this soil which is a complete lack of positive response due to the enticement of evil. We've got this temporary, superficial uh, response masquerading as true commitment. We've got this genuine interest and conviction about the truth that simply falls short due to the rigorous demands of discipleship and following Jesus. And then we have the good soil, and it yields perseverance and multiplication and 30 and 60 and 100 fold more like it come. And it's because God regenerates the heart. Let me say it again. What makes those soils ready for the seed? We don't know. (laughs) We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. That's a mystery of God. We don't know why some soil is ready and some is not. I think even the preparation of the soil is something that God does. Preparing the heart to hear the word preached, but it doesn't change our responsibility to preach the word. And when God works and when the soil is ready, what happens? What does this 30, 60, and 100 tell us? It means that abundance follows. Now 30, 60, and 100 is not some sort of crazy, unbelievable amount. It's just a really, really good harvest. I mean, more than a normal harvest. And so the quantities here, I don't think they're allegorical. I don't think we need, what's the 30 mean and what's the 60 mean, what's the 100 mean? It just means this was a really abundant blessing of God. And so when we read this parable, one of the things that we should read is that when God works and when he's prepared the soil and when we sow, we should be assured that the kingdom of God will triumph. It will, if God works. But now, is the sowing the only task of the disciple of Jesus? Look again at the very end of that second parable in verse 29. But when the grain is ripe at once, he, that's the farmer, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So we scatter the seed, proclaiming the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then God comes in and he makes it grow. But then we come back into the picture and we bring in the harvest. We look and we see, is God working? Is he moving? Is he, is he ri- raising someone up into new faith? And we have to keep our eyes out because there's coming a time when our job is to collect the harvest and bring them into our community and then help them continue to flourish and grow and then go 
multiply themselves. Okay. <laughs> Keep with me. Second question. <laughs> is there more than one kind of faith? This is a challenging question. If you read this parable and you don't ask, well, it seems like there's other kinds of faith happening. Does that mean there's more than one kind of faith? The answer is yes. There's more than one kind of faith. And the other sort of important thing to see here is um, it's really hard to tell what's true saving faith and what's some other kind of faith. There's a doctrine known as, you may have heard of it, called the perseverance of the saints or eternal security. Perseverance of the saints is actually uh, a preferred term that I like to use. And exegetically, when we sort of interpret this, I think it's the biggest stumbling block as we try to understand what's happening here. What's happening with these other seeds that fall into this other kind of soil? There is a kind of faith that is a true faith, and there's a kind that's not. And it's super, like for me, this is super, this is just like, it, it makes me sweat. Just, I'm sweating right now just thinking about it. That there's people that I know that have a different kind of faith, and it's not saving faith. And what's hard here is that the only distinguishing piece of what is, which kind of faith is which is fruit. Is there any fruit? The number of deconversions that are prompted by far lesser crisis of life than what's happening to the people in Jesus' day that we see today should frighten us because it means that people that we thought had a saving faith had some other kind of faith because true saving faith perseveres to the end. You cannot lose true saving faith. So all other kinds of faith are not equal. This is really hard stuff. And it comes and it's even harder for me when I start to think of the 30, the 60 and the 100. It's not like, he doesn't say, and they produce one other. 30, 60, 100. Disciples making new disciples. And the problem is, I don't see this kind of abundance very often. Got to remember why Mark's writing this and why he's recorded it for us. He's reminding people, he's writing to a group of people that were experiencing in, intense persecution, persecution that we've never seen here in this day and age in America, even in the city of Seattle. And he's telling them true faith perseveres even through the thorns and the rocks and the heat. What's your own response to the word proclaimed? Question three, if I never see any fruit or even think about bearing fruit, should I be concerned? If the idea of fruit doesn't excite me, 
if I never even dream about what it might look like, what's that tell me? I've just said, salvation and fruitfulness, that's a divine art. We don't make the growing happen. But if we're not hoping that it's happening, if we're not scattering seed as much as we can that some might come by the work of God to new fruit, what does that say? As Grayson, uh, he's learned to climb the stairs, and as he was climbing the stairs this week, I was thinking about it. Uh, I think there's two kinds of people in the world. world. I think Grayson's the kind of person, he's climbing the stairs because he knows there's something at the top that he can chew on that we haven't put away very well. (laughs) And he's learned that after a few times getting to the top. And so he's the kind of guy, he's climbing the stairs because of the end goal. But I think there's another kind of person and probably another kind of baby that just like to climb the stairs, just to climb the stairs. So they'll climb the stairs and they'll get to the top and they'll turn back around and then they'll climb the stairs again. They just like to climb the stairs. I think we're generally, there's two kinds of people too. I am not the kind of person that just likes to exercise for fun. But you throw a ball out there and I can chase it and I can score points and I can win games, I'll run all day long. You tell me, oh, we're just going to run in a big circle. I say, what for? <laughs> now, I'm not saying there's, that's better or worse. I'm just saying that's how I am. Amazing, Grayson's my son. He definitely wants to get something. But here's the deal when it comes to being followers of Jesus. I think we need to be both kinds of people. When it comes to this idea of sowing and reaping, we need to be both kinds of people. We both need to sow and reap because we know that there's something at the end that we so want to get. But I also think that we need to be the kind of people that we just love to sow. Just to sow. Sowing the seed the Word of God, that should be really fun to us. Do you like talking about Jesus? Do you like sharing your story of how He redeemed you? Do you like talking about His grace? If not, why? I dropped my car off at, a, at, at, at the dealership this week to get some work done on it, and I had an appointment I had to get to, so I took the shuttle, and there's this lady named Mary Jo. Is Mary Jo, are you here, Mary Jo? No Mary Jo. I invited Mary Jo to come to church. She saw, I was reading this really thick book. It's like that thick. It's the city of God. I talked like six months ago about it. I'm still not through it. And she looks at it. She says, what's that? And I told her, and we got talking. Eventually, it came out that I was a pastor. She got really excited. I shared my story with her. Then she shared her story with me about how she hadn't found a church since she moved here to Seattle. And she really wanted to, but she wasn't sure. And I'll tell you what, I thought she had plugged in the address of the appointment in her GPS, because, you know, that's her job. She hadn't. (laughs) She was waiting for me to tell her where to turn. I've never been to this place. So we were just driving around, talking about Jesus. And it was like 45 minutes later. And finally she goes, do you know where we're going? And I go, I thought you had it in your phone. We were just having such a good time talking about Jesus. I love to talk about Jesus. I love Mary Jo. I hope she comes and worships with us. It's fun to cast seeds. It's fun 
to invite people into your community. You should enjoy that just for it in itself. Whether any fruit grows out of it, you should just enjoy sowing. But you should also get really excited when you see fruit. And it should drive you. The idea that fruit might come of that, that should excite you just as much. My grandmother had a grapefruit tree outside of her house in Arizona, and I remember as a kid, I thought it was the coolest thing. I'd never seen such giant fruit, and it's still growing. It's still attached to the tree. I remember getting so excited, and we'd rip off grapefruit in the morning, and we'd come in, and we'd slice it open, and then you'd get one of those spoons that also was like a knife, and you'd like chisel your way through it, and you'd end up not getting very much grapefruit at all, but it was so much fun. Fruit, when we see it, should excite us. Where did the excitement go? Why are we so dull? Where is the wonder? Why are we so pessimistic about life and about the work of God? He can't do anything. Not in these people. Not in Seattle. We're so post-Christian. Nobody will ever come back to church. Nobody will ever worship God. I'm not even going to try. Why don't we care more? when the birds come and steal away the seeds from our friends? Why don't we care more when the terror of the anti-Christian voices in our world steal the joy of those who are starting to show signs of growth? Why don't we fight back against the thorns that, that struggle and strangle the faith of those that we love? Who taught me to be so indifferent to fruit? Maybe we've lost our excitement for fruit because we've never seen it. Or it's been so long since we saw real fruit growing on our trees. God, give us a new desire for fruit. Give us an excitement when we see it. Grow up new fruit in the midst of our community. Help us to be people that sow the seed freely and regularly. And that is our bearing of fruit. In fact, when we become mature and we are new fruit, we can't help. That's how, that's how things grow. Our seeds just fall off of us. Our bearing fruit is our spreading of the seed. And we don't spread one and we don't pick it up and we just don't put it in just hoping we spread it widely. We're not in charge of making it grow. Grab a handful, throw it, and then you know what you need to do? You need to start praying. You need to pray. Pray that it finds good soil, that God grows it to maturity. That same Lifeway study said one in five churchgoers do not pray for non-Christians. 21% said they pray every day for non-Christians. 26% said they pray a few times a week, and 20% said they rarely or never pray. And Ed Stetzer, who's the president of Lifeway Research, or used to be at least, he says praying more frequently for the status of people who are not professing Christians is one of the best indicators of more spiritual maturity in the studies that he's been a part of. People who pray for non-Christians. Scatter the seed and start praying. Pray for protection from birds, Pray for protection from anti-Christian pushback and religious scorn in our city. Pray for protection from easy believism and stunted consideration. Pray and help those new in the faith find deep, 
rich community that they grow up to know the Lord, that the enemy cannot touch them because they're in community with us and we're protecting them with prayer and proximity and pray that these people find deep soil here at Sedaris. And then finally, I'll just say this here. Don't compare yourself to others. It could be 30, 60, 100. I think one of the reasons we're given those different words, this isn't a fruit competition. It's not like, see how much fruit you can have. It's not like you're out swimming with your friends and just like, quick dunk, baptize them. I got one. That's not how we do it. (laughs) Yes, all good disciples of Jesus are fruitful. This parable makes it clear, but their performance is not necessarily uniform, okay? Here's how you scatter. It's this simple. This is a huge thing that we talk about at Sedaris. Just ask people to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all you say. Have you ever actually considered Jesus? If they say no, you say, do you want to? Would you like me to help you consider? They say, yes, I've considered. Do you want to reconsider? Can I help you reconsider the gospel? And we'll all have different strokes. Different ways that we throw. And there's not just like one way, if you're a golfer in here, there's not like one swing that just works all the time. I had two buddies when I was in accounting. One of them had a terrible swing. (laughs) I mean, it was like, I don't even know what he was doing. And the other one had a majestic swing. I mean, this guy looked like he was a professional golfer. It was just like a perfect swing. The guy with the perfect swing (laughs) sucked at golf. (laughs) He was terrible. I mean, the thing never went straight. The guy with the real quirky little swing, straight down the middle every time. Different strokes, man, for different folks. But there's one seed, the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's one goal, fruit. And there's one kind of fruit, fruit that makes other fruit. Disciples that make disciples. You might do it one-on-one. You might be a pastor and start a church. You might have a group of people that come and you walk through the Gospel of John together. You might use Alpha as a tool to help you start the consideration process with a friend. Different strokes for different folks, but one goal, following Jesus Christ and helping others follow Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of a guy named Donald Gray Barnhouse? Raise your hand if you've heard of Donald Gray Barnhouse. Two people. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the, was the most well-known preacher from 1930 to 1950 in America. Two people know about him. This tells me two things. First, it's not about the sower. It's about the word. Be weary of Christian celebrity. Don't perpetuate it. Love the word of God more than the sower of the word. If you encounter anyone that promotes himself or herself above the word of God, run the other way. If I start promoting myself above the word of God, run out as soon as you hear it. 
It's the word of God that changes people, not the sower. The other reason I bring up Barnhouse is because I heard a story this week regarding him. There's another very famous person named Karl Barth. And Karl Barth was the uh, most influential theologian of the 20th century. And one time Barnhouse flew to Germany and visited Barth, and he said, <laughs> and they were talking, and, and Barnhouse said to Barth, Barth is notoriously difficult to understand. Nobody really understands him <laughs> fully. And, and, and Barnhouse said to Barth, why are you so hard to understand? Who knows what Bart said. And Barnhouse then said this, Even I can't understand you. Didn't Jesus say, feed my sheep? He didn't say, feed my giraffes. You put that truth so high up, only the giraffes can get it. I thought that was, <laughs> that was a great line. And here's my, so this is my reminder to you. Keep it simple. Sowing the seed, sowing the word of God, keep it simple that anyone can understand. That's our task. That's what we need to be doing. Will you sow the word with me? Let's pray. Father, we admit that we don't always know how to do this, how to sow your word amongst all the peoples of the earth. We admit that we're scared, that we struggle, that we're intimidated, that we're too easy and too quick to give up, but we pray that you'd change that about us, that you'd give us your courage and your boldness, that you'd give us your spirit, that you'll give us the words in the moment to say what's true and right and good, that our hearts would grow in maturity towards you, that we'd stop being infants and children that always consume, but that we become those who bear much fruit as we proclaim, as we preach the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, as we tell the world that you've sent him into, into our world, that he might live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we should have died, and that he rose that first Easter Sunday so that death would reign no more, and that by putting our faith in Jesus Christ, by telling him, you are my Savior. You died for me. Forgive me of my sin. By simply doing that, we can have life eternal with him, and we too can become sowers of the word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.